When the first terror suspects were brought to the detention center at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, this was in January of 2002, there were 20 men blindfolded and handcuffed in orange jumpsuits. They were met by Marines and Humvees. Soldiers were armed with rocket launchers and a helicopter gunship patrolled above. After the destruction in the United States on September 11th, we thought these terrorists were something other than human, like villains from the movies. They were strapped like cargo into planes because they would gnaw through hydraulic cables to take the planes down. Uh, And so, you know, people had in their minds envisioned these people as monsters. Mark Fallon is a career Navy investigator, and he was the deputy commander of a task force investigating alleged Al-Qaeda members. Fallon knew immediately that something wasn't quite right. When the first prisoners got off the plane, it wasn't the Al-Qaeda members that we were looking for. It was, we call them dirt farmers. Lots and lots of dirt farmers. But when a man named Mohamedou Salahi arrived at Guantanamo Bay in August 2002, he seemed somehow like the real deal. He was no farmer, but an electrical engineer who had lived in the West. The evidence pointed to him being high-level Al-Qaeda with his hands in a number of terrorist plots. But almost 15 years later, officials let him go because Salahi hadn't committed any acts of terror and had no valuable information on people who had. The United States had detained, interrogated, and tortured an innocent, very unlucky man. Earlier this year, staff writer Ben Taub flew to Mauritania to meet Mohamedou Salahi and find out just what had gone wrong. Mauritania is a vast desert country in West Africa. It's about the same distance from New York as France is, but it takes a really long time to get there. I went through Casablanca, spent 15 hours in the airport there, and then flew very late at night to Nouakchott, the capital of Mauritania. On the descent into Nouakchott, it's pitch black. There are no lights because very few people in the country have electricity. You can only tell you're arriving because the plane just keeps getting lower, and your ears are popping, and then all of a sudden you're on the ground. I walk into the airport and get my visa, and then almost immediately, I'm pulled aside by a security official. I told him I'm here to see Mohamedou Salahi, and he said, the ex-prisoner from Guantanamo? And I said, yes, and he said, stand over there. A Mauritanian intelligence officer came over to me, and I tried to explain to him that I'm not here to cause any trouble. I'm not here to rendition Mohamedou like the Americans had in the past. Meanwhile, Mohamedou was outside the airport waiting for me. He can't enter the building. Clearly, the security officials know who he is, and he's trying to keep a low profile these days. I texted him, and a few minutes later, he sent in his nephew, who just slipped behind airport security because he happens to know someone. The fact is, this is a place where personal relationships matter more than the official system. A few minutes later, he came to an agreement with airport security. They took a photograph of his identity card and said, essentially, okay, if Ben creates any trouble in this country, it's your problem and it's your fault. They stamped my passport. I went outside and I saw Mohamedou. His face was obscured by a white turban. The first thing he said was, bet you'll think twice next time about saying you know me. And he laughed and led me to the car, and we drove past a dead horse carcass down into Nuakchal. 
No, this is still like boiling in my head. Still simmering, not boiling, but simmering in my head. All a lot of whys. Why? You know, why we cannot live in dignity and peace in this part of the world? How often do you still have dreams that are related to Guantanamo? Very often, dude. Mm. Very often. You don't drink milk? Mohamedou lives on the second floor of a small building in central Nouakchott. He sleeps under a mosquito net on a mattress on the floor. And outside the window, which is open all the time, there's a sheep. Is it just one sheep? I don't know. Do they go in, inside the home? Yes, they live inside the home. Not inside the room, inside the... Right. Mohamedou was born into a family of camel herders in a village a few hundred miles from here. But he moved to Nouakchott as a kid. He grew up measuring political eras by military coups. And the country is still governed by an oppressive, undemocratic regime. It's an environment that's very hostile to journalism and free speech. I had to work very carefully. I couldn't carry any real recording equipment with me. And so I recorded my interviews with Mohamedou on my phone. This feels about as far away from the United States as you can get. And yet, Mohamedou spends his days watching Adam Sandler movies and The Office and YouTube compilations of the worst auditions on American Idol. He's never actually been to the United States, but he's obsessed with American culture, almost all of which he learned about during his detention at Guantanamo Bay. When did you first start listening to country music? The gods. Yeah. The gods listened to it and by virtue of me being there. He even learned English by imitating his guards and his interrogators. And uh, like, my bird is a mountain cut in timber down. Oh, you what? <laughs> <laughs> like, what was the phrase? What was the? I've been in the mountain cut in timber down. I've been in what? In the mountains. In the mountains. Cutting timber down. Cutting timber down. <laughs> yeah, that's how they speak. <laughs> <laughs> It might seem weird to you that this guy was supposedly a high-level al-Qaeda official and was once considered the U.S. military's highest-value detainee. Because the truth is, he never was a high-level al-Qaeda official. He just happened to look like one 20 years ago to someone monitoring his travel and connections. But the question of who he actually was and how exactly he was connected to Al-Qaeda is what faced investigators like Mark Fallon. You know, what were the circumstances? How did Mohamedou wind up there? Mark Fallon led a team of elite investigators tasked with assembling criminal cases against detainees at Guantanamo. Mohamedou arrived at the detention camp in August of 2002. And so we would talk to a, a detainee, and we would try to track them from adolescence to Guantanamo. Okay, let's start with adolescence. Islam is a complete system that can organize every aspect of life. We believe that Islam... Mohamedou grew up very devout. As a teenager, he memorized the entire Quran. In the evenings, he and his cousin, a young poet named Mahfouz Walid, would go to a local cafe where the owner showed them videos from the Palestinian struggle and the jihad in Afghanistan. In the mosques throughout the countryside, teachers call people to join the fight, telling them why jihad is obligatory for them. The Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan and was trying to install a communist government. Mohamedou and his cousin were smitten with this narrative that a ragtag group of mujahideen were taking on a superpower in defense of Muslims. 
Back then, this was the jihad. Still held by the government. In all the provinces, Mujahideen and rebel soldiers are fighting to take control before making the final assault. Mohamedou was an exceptional student. After high school, he got a scholarship to study engineering abroad in Germany. But he couldn't let go of his romantic view of the Mujahideen. In December 1990, shortly before his 20th birthday, Mohamedou abandoned his studies and set off for the jihad in Afghanistan. Soon afterward, his cousin, Mahfouz Walid, went too. Militant groups often organize by language, you have to be able to talk to your comrades, and so Mohamedou and Mahfouz ended up in a group that spoke Arabic. The leader was a tall Saudi construction heir named Osama bin Laden, and the group was Al-Qaeda. At that point, Al-Qaeda wasn't the same thing that we know it to be today. It hadn't carried out any terrorist attacks abroad. The leadership may have had global ambitions, but Mohamedou never met bin Laden. While he was still in training, the battle with the communists ended, and these rival Islamist groups in the region started competing for power. Mohamedou didn't want any part of that. It wasn't what he signed up for. After three months, he left Afghanistan for good. He went back to Germany and worked in a computer repair shop and finished his degree. Because I'm a very moderate person, I'm a very traditional Muslim. Yeah. I'm not apologizing for that. Of course. But I hate, I fucking hate extremism. Yeah. Because extremism is not a part of this culture I grew up in. When I was, uh, when I was a teenager, I flirted with, the, with this. Yeah. Because of Afghanistan, or because of... By the mid-90s, a number of people who had joined Al-Qaeda were returning to their home countries. Canada, This is Dadahi Walid Abdullahi. He was the head of Mauritania's intelligence apparatus at the time. Mm-hmm. And what he's saying is that Mohamedou's name kept showing up in his investigations into Al-Qaeda. A number of the Mauritanians who had come back from Afghanistan described Mohamedou as one of their contacts in Europe. So Abdullahi asked the Germans to keep an eye on him. For the next few years, Mohamedou was just working with computers and preaching in backyard mosques. And then, in 1998, he got this phone call. So this has nothing to do with the phone Abbas. call, the infamous phone call. Yeah. Okay. The infamous phone call happened. So you remember Salahi's cousin, Mahfouz Walid, the poet who watched those jihadi videos back in the cafes in Mauritania? He also went to Afghanistan, and he did meet bin Laden. He was only 16 years old at the time, but bin Laden was really impressed with his eloquence and his conviction. He got so close to bin Laden that he actually started writing a lot of bin Laden's speeches. He even drafted bin Laden's most important fatwa, the declaration of war against the United States. Like many jihadis, Mahfouz took on a fake name to obscure his identity. He started going by Abu Hafs al-Muratani. In 1998, Abu Hafs called Muhammadu Salahi from bin Laden's satellite phone. The call had nothing to do with al-Qaeda. Abu Hafs's father was sick back in Mauritania, and Abu Hafs wanted to pay for his treatment. But he needed Muhammadu's help. He wanted to send you money to look after his, it was his, dad. his dad. He didn't remember. So Mohamedou helped. Abu Hafs wired him around $4,000, and Mohamedou withdrew the cash and gave it to friends who were traveling back to Nouakchott. And so the investigator's job is to go in there and determine what actually happened there, what occurred, what were the factors. That's Mark Fallon, the investigator at Guantanamo. 
uh, you know, so I could hand somebody my phone and they can take a call. That doesn't mean that I'm working with them, right? Or they could borrow a phone. So, so you know, you're trying to determine what, what are the circumstances here. This kind of thing, it happened all the time. Mohamedou was operating in this jihadi milieu, even though he was no longer a part of al-Qaeda. One night in October 1999, his friend asked him to host three Muslims who were passing through his town in Germany. Mohamedou didn't know who these guys were, but he said yes. They stayed for dinner and left at dawn. He never knew their names, and he never saw them again. But they would go on to become hijackers on 9-11. By now, Salahi was having visa problems related to his employment status. One of his friends in Canada suggested that he move to Montreal. So, in November 1999, he moved there and started leading prayers at a prominent mosque. But, once again, he found himself in accidental proximity to men who were plotting attacks. Three weeks after he arrived, a guy who used to pray at the mosque where Mohamedou was now preaching was caught trying to blow up Los Angeles International Airport. Last week, the U.S. Customs Service made one of its most important arrests. On December 14th, an individual who has now been identified as Ahmed Rasim attempted to smuggle highly explosive materials from Canada into the United States. And because Mohamedou had arrived right before the failed attack and had recently been in touch with Abu Hafs, the Americans started to think that he was the mastermind. So, he's under surveillance in Canada, and back in Mauritania, his family is being questioned about his involvement in this plot. They beg him to fly home. They tell him his mother is sick. And in January 2000, he goes back. But he's immediately arrested at the request of the Americans. After three weeks of interrogation, Abdullahi, the Mauritanian intelligence chief, concluded that Mohamedou was not a threat. He released him and let him go about his life. A friend helped Mohamedou find work installing internet routers for a telecommunications company. For the rest of that year, and throughout much of 2001, everything was fine. But then September arrived, and everything changed. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. The U.S. government was terrified that there was going to be another attack, and so they started aggressively going after anyone who fit a certain threat profile. And Mohamedou fit. You know, he was in Hamburg, he was in Canada. We had Rassam crossing the border. His travel patterns were, were consistent with what an Al-Qaeda operative would do. So you were the one who knew about technology yes, and who yes, yes, had yes. information. Yeah. I, I, the FBI told me I fit the perfect profile of a terrorist. Right. The United States asked the Mauritanian government to turn over Mohamedou to the CIA. And Abdullahi is a professional. He's not about to refuse a request from another intelligence agency. So, on November 20th, 2001, Abdullahi sent his men to pick up Salahi at his mother's house. As we drove off, I could see in the rear view mirror the fingers of my mother raised to the sky and counting prayers. I would never see my mother again, nor my old brother. After another week of questioning, Abdullahi handed over Mohamedou to a Jordanian rendition team. Abdullahi thought that Mohamedou would be back within a few days, but that's not what happened. During that time, I was rented by the U.S. to Jordan, where I was interrogated in a Jordanian intelligence prison. 
I was rendered again to Bagram Air Base and finally rendered a third time in August of 2002 to the prison of Guantanamo Bay. Mohamedou Salahi was once considered the highest value prisoner at the base. He was a Mauritanian, an electrical engineer who the authorities believed was an Al-Qaeda operative. And Salahi's cousin, a man known as Abu Hafs al-Muratani, was in fact very close to Osama bin Laden. So the interrogators really wanted to know about Abu Hafs. No, this is the, the FBI, the yeah. first question. Yeah. He told me, where is Abu Hafs? Yeah. Tell us where is he is. here in Warsaw. I said, I don't know. Yeah. And then the bullshit, fuck you, and so tell yeah. us where he is. Because he was wanted for $25 million. Of course. Yeah. So, and At this point, Mohamedou was still optimistic about his situation. He understood that his life had involved a series of coincidences that looked really bad, but he thought that he'd be exonerated by the American justice system. I said, no, I've been to, to the West, and I know that it doesn't yeah. matter your ethnicity, right. your nationality, you still be treated within the rule of law. Right. But he didn't get access to the American justice system. By this point, Mark Fallon and his team of highly trained and experienced investigators, they had determined that most of the Guantanamo detainees were basically innocent or had been sent there by mistake. But this didn't fit the official narrative. The Bush administration and the military leadership were telling everyone that Guantanamo was filled with men who would stop at nothing to destroy the United States. So Fallon and his team of al-Qaeda experts were essentially sidelined, and the guys who took over interrogations were mostly army reservists and conscripts. So some, many of them had no experience, and I would talk to them, and I'd ask, have you ever done an interrogation before? And many of them would point to the person sitting across the room and say, oh, yeah, I role-played with this other soldier before. So the first time they were ever in a room in an actual uh, adversarial interview, uh, was with a potential al-Qaeda suspect at Guantanamo Bay. And so it was just... These guys weren't getting any results. But they were impervious to the possibility that the men before them might be innocent. In fact, each failed interrogation was taken as proof that these detainees were al-Qaeda and had been trained to resist interrogation. When the CIA wanted to torture... What they said was that there was a sophisticated training program that made these people almost superhuman. And they could resist, you know, even our best interrogators. So we need to utilize these techniques and, and these torture techniques and able to break them. So they adopted a new set of methods. It was meant to, they, they called it the, the, the triple Ds, debility, dependency, and dread. And, and so the goal was to make that person's existence so dreadful to dehumanize them so much, to treat them like dogs, um, that their only source of refuge would be their interrogator. These techniques didn't come about by accident. They were part of a plan, drafted and approved by government lawyers and psychologists. But the tactics weren't conceived by the Americans. They originated during the Korean War. It was basically the same techniques that the North Koreans utilized against our service members. And the North Koreans weren't using them to gather intelligence. They just wanted to elicit false confessions for propaganda purposes. So what the CIA was doing was actually engaging in a process that we knew produced false information. 
And, and so how anyone logically can conclude that that would be an effective method to obtain information is just absolutely ludicrous. The U.S. military considered Mohamedou Salahi to be its highest value detainee. They thought he was the leader of al-Qaeda cells in Europe and Canada. So, Mohamedou was the second person subjected to what they called special projects. Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, personally signed off on Salahi's interrogation plan. They kept him in a freezing cell with no exposure to daylight. They blasted him with strobe lights and heavy metal music. He was force-fed during the daylight hours of Ramadan, when Muslims are supposed to fast. He was beaten. His ribs were broken. He was sexually assaulted by female interrogators. One day, Mohamedou's lead interrogator read him a letter that was later shown to be forged. It said that Mohamedou's mother would soon be transferred to Guantanamo, where she would probably be raped. According to military records, Mohamedou was also told to imagine the worst possible scenario he could end up in, and that he would soon disappear down a very dark hole. His existence will become erased, no one will know what happened to him, and eventually no one will care. They took him to a black site that had been constructed just for him. He was kept in total darkness. After a few weeks there, he started to lose his mind. I could hear, hear voices, and I could hear my family talking to me every day. I could hear music, and I could fly. Actually, one time I tried to fly myself, and I fell face down, and I injured myself. Mohamedou's torture was extensively recorded in government documents, which have since been declassified. The use of torture by the military accomplished two things in Mohamedou's case. First, it made it so that he would never stand trial for any of the crimes he'd been accused of. Uh, once that it was determined that he was tortured in custody, once it was determined that he was hallucinating, uh, the prosecution basically said, this case is garbage. We cannot go to court. It is unreliable. We will not go to court with this case. So from that... Fact, and second, it produced a torrent of false confessions. Mohamedou, so like other detainees subjected to the torture program, confessed to all kinds of things he hadn't been involved in, crimes he didn't commit, plots that had never been plotted, conspiracies that did not exist. You know, if they would have wanted him to confess to being on the grassy knoll for the JFK assassination, I'm sure we could have got him to confess to that too. And so we wasted valuable resources chasing false leads and false intelligence, trying to disprove the facts that were obtained under torture. This can't have come as a surprise. These tactics achieved exactly what they had been designed to do. But even though Mohamedou wasn't going to stand trial and was no longer a reliable source of intelligence, the government still couldn't let him go. He was a walking trove of information about a classified torture program. In 2008, the Senate Armed Services Committee published an extensive report on the military's use of torture. Mohamedou's case is featured throughout, and so now much of what he had experienced was public. Two years later, there were still no plans to prosecute Mohamedou, and so a judge ordered his release. But the government appealed, and so Mohamedou was kept for another six years. Early in his detention, Mohamedou had written a diary detailing his mistreatment at Guantanamo, and in 2015, while he was still in custody, it was finally published. 
What do American people think? I am eager to know. I would like to believe the majority of Americans want to see justice done, and they are not interested in financing the detention of innocent people. I know there is a small extremist minority that believes that everybody in this Cuban prison is evil, and that we are treated better than we deserve. But this opinion has no basis but ignorance. I am amazed that somebody can build such an incriminating opinion about people he or she doesn't even know. I mean, we lost who we were. We forgot who we were. Decisions were made out of fear, ignorance, and arrogance, and emotions ruled the day. Uh, And it was clouded by the fact that nobody was supposed to know. Nobody was ever supposed to know what we did to these human beings. They were never supposed to see the light of day. They were never supposed to talk about it. And and if you look back at where the first leaks came from about the program, they came from the CIA. CIA officers couldn't live with what they were doing. Unlike those guys, Mark Fallon never leaked anything. But when he was kept out of key meetings, he and his team started carefully documenting everything that went wrong. Uh, It was clear to me these were war crimes uh, that we were going to embark upon. And I did the only, I felt like I was under, I've worked a lot of undercover operations in my career. I felt like I was undercover in a criminal enterprise and just trying to salvage whatever I can, pushing evidence to people to hang on to uh, so that someday when this came to light, and I didn't know if it would be 20 years uh, or if it would ever would. In October 2016, Mohamedou Salahi was loaded onto a military flight and shackled for the last time. He was flown back to Mauritania, free in a sense, but not really. A condition for his return was that the Mauritanian government wouldn't give him a passport, so he couldn't leave the country. The effects of the torture have followed him home. And I have like night terror, and for nights on end I cannot sleep, and sometimes I wake up and I cannot breathe. I have this headache every single day. And no matter how much medication I take, the headaches does not go away. Back in Guantanamo, Mohamedou had also undergone an emergency gallbladder surgery. But it was botched and requires correcting. And in Mauritania, the doctors don't have the necessary equipment to carry it out. They usually send patients to Europe. And we are, we are arranged to have a, a hospital in Germany. They want to give me the medical care I needed for free. But to this day, the U.S. United States government refuses to allow me to seek that medical treatment. They refuse to and there's another reason he wants to move abroad. A couple of years ago, he met a woman online, an American lawyer. They had a lengthy correspondence, and eventually she came to visit him in Nouakchott. They started dating and soon got married in an Islamic ceremony. And this April... She gave birth to Mohamedou's son. But she lives in Europe, and he can't visit. So officially it will be single parent, fatherless. And that's very, very bad in my culture, very bad for me. And so now, Mohamedou Salahi is the father of an American citizen. In total, around 780 detainees have been sent to Guantanamo Bay, but 740 have been released, which is to say that the overwhelming majority were determined to not be a threat to the United States. 
But the detention camp casts a really long shadow, and not just for the detainees. For as long as the camp has been open, terrorist groups have been recruiting based on the injustice it represents. When ISIS made its beheading videos, it dressed Western prisoners in orange jumpsuits, specifically to mirror the imagery of that shown from Guantanamo Bay's earliest photographs. Presidents Bush and Obama both tried and failed to close Guantanamo. But Donald Trump has been really enthusiastic about keeping it open, and often claims, falsely, that torture is effective. And don't tell me it doesn't work. Torture works, okay, folks? Torture, you know, have these guys... Torture doesn't work. Believe me, it works, okay? The United States government is the most powerful democracy in the world. And they have the means to uh, uphold human rights. But instead, the United States is telling the world very clear and loud that democracy does not work. When you need to get caught and caught down and dirty, you need a dictatorship. That dictatorship was built in Guantanamo Bay. So much of what happened to Mohamedou can be traced back to the fact that his cousin, Abu Hafs al-Muratani, was bin Laden's Sharia advisor and a member of al-Qaeda's Shura Council. As I listened to Mohamedou tell his story, it was as if Abu Hafs were always lurking in the background. He was never caught or killed by the Americans. In fact, I had heard that he was also back in Mauritania. I really wanted Mohamedou to introduce me, but I was not sure how to ask. Then. One day, Mohamedou took me to a wedding party at the home of Mauritania's best radiologist. And the first person I saw as we approached was Abu Hafs al-Muratani. He was dressed in a turban and white flowing robes. I followed him into the atrium. I stood in the reception area watching Mauritanian leaders kiss Abu Hafs on the cheek and thank him for gracing the party with his presence. A government official explained to me that Abu Hafs was now an advisor to the president. Mohamedou had abandoned al-Qaeda 10 years before 9-11, and his life was destroyed by the Americans. And yet Abu Hafs, who drafted bin Laden's fatwa against the United States, is free and respected. As Abu Hafs approached the exit, I cut him off. I asked him for an interview, but he politely deflected. He gave me a phone number and said, call this number, it's for my secretary. The next day, I did call. He doesn't have a secretary. The number was his own. He told me, come to my house right now. You're listening to the New Yorker Radio Hour. More to come. WNYC Studios is supported by Roundabout Theatre Company. Want to see great theatre for free? For over 50 years, Roundabout Theatre Company has produced some of New York's most thrilling plays and musicals, from star-studded revivals to revolutionary new works, both on and off Broadway. Now they're introducing Rewards by Roundabout, a brand new program that lets you earn points towards free tickets with every show you see. And it doesn't cost a thing to join. See great theatre, earn free tickets. It's that simple. Just visit rewardsbyroundabout.org to start earning now. 
The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Andy, a female-founded women's swimwear brand. The small group of women behind Andy hate swimwear shopping as much as you do, so they developed a better approach. Andy offers a curated collection of swimsuits designed for a perfect fit, available in sizes extra small to triple XL. Andy has free shipping and free returns, so you can try a few sizes and styles from the comfort of your own home. Use code NEWYORKER for $10 off at andyswim.com. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. In January, our reporter Ben Taub traveled to Mauritania in Western Africa in order to meet with a man named Mohamedou Salahi. His story is the subject of our entire program today. When Salahi was sent to Guantanamo Bay, one of the most damning pieces of evidence is that he had once received a call from Osama bin Laden's satellite phone. Salahi's cousin was a high-ranking al-Qaeda member very close to bin Laden, and this cousin had once used bin Laden's phone to call Salahi. While Salahi was subjected to torture at Guantanamo, his cousin, Abu Hafs al-Muratani, was never captured by the United States. He lives freely now in his home country of Mauritania, and while Ben Taub was reporting there, he ran into Abu Hafs at a party. He gave me a phone number and said, call this number, it's for my secretary. The next day, I did call. He told me, come to my house right now. Here's staff writer Ben Taub. Abu Hafs al-Muratani is a man of extraordinary influence and power. He lives in one of Nuakchot's most expensive neighborhoods, near the sea. It's made up of lavish compounds, many of which belong to European expatriates. But one building is out of place. It's a small wooden shack sitting up against one of these compounds. This is the temporary site of a mosque where Abu Hafs preaches. There's groups of young Salafi men going into this shack, wooden shack, with a loudspeaker hooked up to the top uh, to pray for the evening. This is called to prayer. As I approach his house, I go on Google Maps and drop a pin on my exact location. I send that pin to my editor in New York and give him the phone numbers for certain people he should contact in Mauritania if I can't check in within four hours. Abu Hafs finishes leading prayers and invites me to follow him into his compound. We walk through the gate, and he closes it behind me and brings me into his living room. I sit down on his couch. Several of his followers come in, too. Yes, you're welcome. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, First thing, um, in the article... It was me and my translator. Since I'd come to his house in such a hurry, the only person available was one of Muhammadu's nephews. And since Muhammadu and Abu Hafs are cousins, that means he's also one of Abu Hafs's nephews. I sat down on the couch and he poured me a glass of water. Bush. Bush. I wanted to make clear that I was not there to relitigate his past in Al-Qaeda or to blame him for 9-11. In fact... I knew from the 9-11 Commission report that Abu Hafs opposed the attacks. When he first learned about the plan, he stood up in a Shura Council meeting and defied bin Laden, saying that the scale of civilian casualties was indefensible in Islamic law. 
So he's especially sensitive about anyone linking him to 9-11, even though he knew about it before it took place. So if the, uh, the terrorists, if they are interested in only to attack... Don't use that word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't say that word. Yeah, yeah. No, no, he didn't say they are terrorists, but just to explain to you. No, I don't want to use words. I'd come to Abu Hafs to learn two things. How did he feel about the fact that his cousin, whom he'd grown up with, who he had followed to Afghanistan, had essentially gone to Guantanamo Bay in his place? And how is it that Abu Hafs, this al-Qaeda leader who had a $25 million bounty on his head, was never captured and was living openly in the same country from which Mahamadou had been renditioned by the CIA? Those were my questions. But it was clear that Abu Hafs had other things on his mind. You live in the West and you have a great mind. And this is a great uh, things to guide you to the truth. Everyone who looks for the truth, if he are interested in it, the God will guide you to the truth. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. When the U.S. invaded Afghanistan in October 2001, Abu Hafs was living in Kandahar. He knew he had to leave the country, and so he traveled through remote villages, entrusting his life to Afghan shepherds who were presumably unaware of the $25 million bounty on his head. He made it to Pakistan, which was clearly giving sanctuary to many Taliban fighters, but he worried that they would turn him over to the CIA. Officially, if unreliably, Pakistan is a counterterrorism partner of the United States. And in Pakistan, Abu Hafs and the other al-Qaeda fighters, who were mostly Arabs, stood out. In an emergency meeting with other al-Qaeda leaders, he came up with a plan. The safest place, he thought, was a place that had no relationship to the Americans. He had to get to Iran. I chose Iran for many reasons. What Abu Hafs guessed correctly is that the Iranians understood his value. They would have the al-Qaeda leadership living in their custody. And during that time, there would be no al-Qaeda operations within Iranian territory. For the next decade, he lived partly as a prisoner, partly as a guest. Yes, I stayed in Iran 10 years. Uh-huh. I was in a house. Uh, every two days, uh, I have the opportunity to go outside for the shower and for the, uh, uh, to, to do a shower and everything. Technically, he was under house arrest. But he was the kind of detainee who gets escorted to fancy malls, who works out in the same gym as foreign diplomats, who has a cell phone and internet access. This was at the same time that his cousin, Mohamedou Salahi, was being tortured at Guantanamo Bay. For the next decade, while Abu Hafs was living in Iran, Mauritania was the site of regular jihadi violence. But it stopped abruptly in 2011. And it was around that time that Abu Hafs realized he could go home. And one day, I decide that when I want to, the, to do the shower and to the gym and everything, yeah. 
I'll take the card away mm-hmm. and go go away. Okay, to the embassy. Yeah. yeah. Abu Haf slipped out of Iranian custody during a trip to the gym. He bolted into the changing room and into the street. And dressed in his gym clothes, he hailed a taxi to the Mauritanian embassy in Tehran. Yes, and the ambassador called the uh, foreign minister, mm-hmm. and that called the president, and the president told them all to make sure that he's okay, mm-hmm. and he and they have to do everything to bring to him back him. to Mauritania. In order to avoid detection by the Americans, they booked him on a commercial route through three transit countries. It's <laughs> an amazing story. Well, okay. an yeah, amazing it's story. very amazing. Um, In fact, could I ask him some questions about the Mahmoudis case? Yes. The whole time you asked me, now I will ask you one question. Please, and this question might lead you to a very successful life. Okay. Are you a Christian or a Jews? Uh, no, I'm not. If you now you ask yourself, hmm. now if you see a big machine, a complicated machine, if you want to make sure about this machine or hmm. this, you should read the, the, the manufacturer's book for this machine hmm. to make sure everything is the machine is you. And the rule for that is the Quran. He handed me a French translation of the Quran. This is the, the manual for yeah, the, the manual for the for you. Yourself. If you died at the moment you will go to the hell. We don't want you to go to, to the hell. And you, and you can do uh, by one phrase. You said it by your tongue. And you believe in your heart. Yes, and uh, the, the phrase is the shahada. The shahada is one sentence. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. When someone wants to convert to Islam, they say this phrase in the presence of Muslim witnesses. In this moment, it became clear to me that Abu Hafs wanted me to convert, right here, on his couch. The Sheikh wants you to try, inshallah, to book your place in the paradise. And it is an easy thing, just by one phrase. Yes, it's very easy. But just I, you can try. But there was another part what okay. he said. He said, "You have to uh, say the the shahada, and you have to um, believe stand and believe in your heart. Yes. And this, for, to understand this, the second part, I need to finish reading yes. this first. But no one he has the experience what will be tomorrow because we can die now. Yes, but I, I didn't get the sense that he was threatening me. But you feel very vulnerable in a former Al Qaeda leader's house, and Abu Hafs's followers were getting agitated that I was not receptive to his message. The fact is, the shahada is supposed to be a sincere profession of faith, something one chooses to do when one is ready. I hadn't even read the Quran, so I was now in this almost comical situation where I'm explaining to this man, a fundamentalist who considers himself a religious leader why my spontaneous conversion wouldn't be legitimate in Islam. Yes, but I, 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 can't, I can't fulfill the shahada properly until I've read the book. But yeah. you can't say the shahada and then you read the book. 
قولوا ما الذي يمنعه منها؟ I still needed to ask him about Muhammadu, so I had to figure out a way to pivot out of the talk of conversion and get back to the interview. So I tried to frame it in terms that he would understand. Uh, urgency. What I would like to do, if possible, is finish the questions tonight in case they, the police, <laughs> get me out of Martinique because they don't like journalists. Yes. Here, you know? <laughs> he understands the kinds of pressures that security intelligence apparatuses use on individuals. He's been subjected to it in the past. I'm curious. I just have a couple of questions about Mohammedou's case. Okay. Um, so he wrote in his book that, uh, and the Americans claim. Um, that one time you called him from Bin Laden's satellite phone. Is that correct? And if so, what did you discuss? No relationship with the jihad or something. Yeah, well, Muhammad, you told me, and he said it was about um, uh, money to help uh, your father who was sick. Is that right? Yes, I transferred to him some money. Ah, okay, so, okay. Then the other thing was about Muhammadu. And I guess the the kind of uncomfortable question, and I don't mean to insult, but I wonder, do, does he think that Muhammadu would have ever been arrested if uh, he had not been in Al Qaeda? Not not Muhammadu. If yeah yeah no relationship. That was pretty much all he had to say on the subject of his cousin spending 15 years in Guantanamo Bay. And then he thanked me for coming. And the happiness, would, you have never find the happiness without you believe in the God, the real belief. Yeah. That night, I went to Mohamedou's apartment and told him what had happened. True. But this fit along with his general pattern of being like relatively dis- just dismissive and like not interested in your plight. You know? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're right, you're right. That's very dismissive. That's yeah. he, he's more interested in saving your soul. Yeah, yeah. No. Exactly. His soul is not important to him. What was the other call? It was around 8 p.m. on my last night. I went to his apartment to say goodbye to him. And he was packing up his stuff and said he needed to leave for the night because one of his aunts had died. That aunt was also Abu Hafsa's aunt. And so the family was going to head out in convoy, drive overnight and bury her at dawn. And Abu Hafs was going to be in the convoy. Abu Hafs was going to lead the prayer at dawn. Encounters like this are basically inevitable. Mahamadou can try to separate himself from Abu Hafs, but in Nuakchot, he can't escape his orbit. And Mahamadou can't leave the country because, as a condition of his release from Guantanamo, the Americans made the Mauritanian government promise to not issue him a passport for some unknown period of time. So he's stuck. He can't get the surgery he needs to correct the botched surgery he had at Guantanamo. He can't go see his wife. He has never even met his son. He can't live as a free man. And yet, he harbors no resentment toward the United States. He has forgiven his tormentors. He's passionate about democracy and the rule of law. He's obsessed with principles that the United States publicly espouses, but has never extended to him. Uh, I was never charged, let alone convicted of any crimes against your country. And I'm just a peaceful person 
and I wasn't I never hurt anyone and I don't intend to hurt anyone and I just want the same freedom like I am uh, risking a lot by speaking out about this stuff because I was told many times that this is not good for me and I said I'm not going to shut up and I will not shut up because I want freedom. I want the same freedom that American citizens enjoy in the United States. Why is that impossible? Why? I just need an answer and I'll be on my way. Mohamedou Salahi, speaking with Ben Taub earlier this year. You can find Ben Taub's article, Guantanamo's Darkest Secret, at newyorker.com. Salahi's book, Guantanamo Diary, was published in 2015, while he was still in detention.